0: It makes your day to day easier and gives you the freedom to focus on what really matters your future.
1: Grow your business without the grind in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to our new ish, I guess it's still new mini series, all about the ready and the future of HR. It's me, Rodney, and Sam. Hi, Sam. Hi, Rodney. We are also joined today, I'm super excited, by one of our really amazing co-workers at The Ready. She is a member of the Future of HR mission-based team. She is one of the coolest, kindest, raddest humans I truly get to work with. Her name is Meg Saxby. Meg, welcome to the show. Well, hey
0: guys. This week on episode three, we're talking about the capabilities HR departments will need to succeed in this bright, shiny future that Rodney and I have been talking about the last few episodes. So this will be a two-parter. And today in part one, we're going to cover the skills that are going to get you knocking on the door of level three in our maturity model.
1: But before we do that, we are going to check-in and Meg is really good at doing check-ins and she has agreed very generously to do ours today. Okay. So folks, I want you to imagine that your 20-year-old self comes to
2: work and then I would like you to share, what would your 20-year-old self be doing? How would we know your 20-year-old self that came to work? Oh, Sam, you can go first and then oh, Rodney and then me. Yeah. <laughs> oh gosh.
0: What would 20-year-old me be doing... At the ready? We
2: hired uh, 20-year-old Sam. Yeah. What do we see?
0: <laughs> what do we see? Well, we see some incredible hair, first of all, <laughs> which, I mean, doesn't really set me apart from now because still rocking pretty great hair, if I do say so myself. Oh, huge sideburns as well. And I, I understand yes. that this check-in was probably not about what did I look like as a 20-year-old. However, that is where I am going. I think here's here's the thing that you would know if it was 20-year-old me. I would be so earnest and so willing to do anything to be helpful and get people to like me, it would be at first very endearing and then probably quickly very annoying. Did I just describe myself right now? Did yeah, I just describe 36-year-old like, Sam? Yeah, that's literally you.
1: Everything you said except sideburns <laughs> is your entire personality.
0: Well, and I can I can bring those back.
1: Sideburns <laughs> are still doable.
0: Oh, That's very yeah. sweet.
1: You're not annoying, Sam. You're oh, one of the you. least annoying people I know.
0: That means a lot coming from you.
1: I mean, I'm easily annoyed, and you're just I know. annoying. 20-year-old Rodney, this is so easy because I've had jobs since I was like a an actual child, and I remember all of these eras very clearly. First of all, I went to college in the late 90s, and I went to Syracuse, and the only— article of clothing that was acceptable to be wearing was stretchy black pants. So I would be (laughs) wearing those to work because I wore them to my internships. I mean, obviously with like a blazer because I was a professional, but stretchy black pants. Also, I loved, loved the look of like really whitish eyeshadow. That was something I was experimenting with at that time. But Vibes wise, my first two internships, one was with a consulting company and one was with the Gartner Group. Thank you, Gartner Group, for putting up with me. I would say my overall vibe was like very social, (laughs) like too social. (laughs) Bosses of mine got in trouble at more than one company from their bosses for spending too much time talking to me. So, twenty-year-old me would be wearing black pants and would know everybody's entire life, like in. Weekly. <laughs> I like that. That's cool. Well, I think twenty-year-old
2: me was known for, <laughs> for like taking a lot of unnecessary risks, so I might have brought Whoa. that into our work environment. I know, unexpected, and also just like being super chatty and probably not understanding that meetings had to actually like lead to work getting done. I think I probably also would have just wanted to like chat with everyone all the time. And I had a pretty rad, like half shaved head at one period
1: in my early twenties. So maybe I would have support that too. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That was on brand. (laughs) That's more easy to believe than that you were a big risk taker.
2: I know, hey, I was young and courageous. Um, I'm so responsible now. (laughs) I know, right? The world, the world got to me. (laughs)
1: All right. All right. Thank you for checking us in, Meg. That was really fun. So the first thing that we're going to talk about today is an assessment. We created this assessment, and by we, I mean Meg, and there is a link to it in our show notes, so you should go take it because it's really interesting, and it will tell you where on the maturity model that Sam and I briefly previewed in episode one your organization likely sits. So before we get into all of the nuts and bolts of this, Meg, I just want to ask you first, like, why do we need an assessment? And like, what purpose does it serve besides my love of Cosmo quizzes and desire to have one of our own? Yeah. So the reason that we made it
2: is because when you are in a journey trying to evolve your operating model, whether you're an HR person or you're embedded in some other function, you could read about different operating models and you could decide, oh, I want to be working as a level three because I think that's the thing that makes most sense for our company. But underneath that, your ability to get to level three is a whole bunch of skill progression and capabilities that you need to have in order to evolve that operating model. And all of that is pretty murky for folks. Mm. So we decided to make an assessment because we thought this will actually make it easier for people To understand, okay, if I really want to be at this level, because this is what I think makes sense for my sector, my context, these are the things that I'm going to have to work on and my team is going to have to work on. So we thought it would help people be able to get a little more prescriptive with themselves and also to kind of clarify some of the underpinning learning that happens as we take teams through this arc and Cosmo quizzes. We just wanted, plus, we wanted to have like Cosmo alliteration and like, you know, <laughs> mostly C's and all that, all that good stuff. We want to do like a good 90s throwback. Oh, so good.
0: I'm curious what sort of, of feedback we've been getting about this assessment so far. Have people been enjoying the buzzfeediness of of it all? Or what what's been our reflection so far as people have been taking it?
2: Yeah, well, what's made us very happy is that we made it lightweight enough that a lot of people are able to get through it. One of my kind of like concerns going in was like, I have a tendency, I did a history degree. And so I like sometimes get very wordy and write these like long, useless tracts. (laughs) And uh, what we've actually been able to do is condense it down to minutes for people to get through. And so we've been able to give it to a client, give it to someone who's interested in the future of HR, someone picks it up off the internet, they're able to get through it and get something useful on the other side. So I'm happy with like how tight we've made it. I think the piece that people often want more, and this is where we're making this podcast and other conversations that we have is like, okay, so I found out that I really need to you know, work on this particular capability in order to get to level three or level four. What does that actually mean? so it does open up for folks like what would that actually look like in my context and in practice
1: so i want to tie a couple of things together because sometimes i think we make things seem more complicated than they actually are so there's there're like three layers of stuff listeners for you to just keep in mind. There's the maturity model thing, and we'll talk more about that, but just to call back to earlier episodes, level three is the Hollywood model. We use mission-based teams to make movies. The studio is persistent, etc. cetera. And Sam and I talked in that episode about all of the practices within mission-based teaming, Meg, talk a little bit about how these capabilities relate to the practices. Like, why aren't the practices enough? Like, okay, cool. We're going to go to level three. We're spinning up mission-based teams. We're doing the moves that the ready is teaching us. Why do we also need to have these kinds of capabilities in the mix?
2: So let's say you just decided you're going to do a mission-based team tomorrow. You haven't done it before. You just want to spin it up and give it a go. We would support you <laughs> and say, you should try it. Absolutely. Yeah. But you would find even within that, if even if you got a, a really good playbook and read some interesting research on how these run, you would hit these little micro moments where if your capabilities are not there yet, you would get snagged. So mm. you would hit micro moments around, for example, how are you going to communicate across a distributed decentralized team? How are you going to make decisions? Like whose input is truly required? How are you going to structure the governance of that team? You would hit all of these sort of like very practical problems. And then if you were to look underneath them, you would see these six capabilities. And so we've highlighted three that we really think If you're going from level one to level two to level three, these are the three you really need to prioritize. But it's sort of like if you take someone and you put them in a Porsche and they're, you know, they're driving on the Autobahn, they may have a really good time, but if they don't know how to (laughs) change gears or take tight turns, it might not go well. So it's a little bit like that. You can have the tools, you can have the practices, but underneath them is like skill, capability and repetition that allows you to really fly
0: when you're in that MBT structure. I'm seeing the glimpse of your check-in answer now, Meg. You had you had that you had that example <laughs> oh just right God. on the tip of your tongue, I ready to go. I
1: was ready.
2: I was like, just you know, for example.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Not that I did. <laughs> so in this part and part two, we're going to cover all six capabilities. Each of them is actually described by like a pair of adjectives. So don't let that trip you up because Sam's having a really hard time with it. But for (laughs) today, we're going to talk about the three that Meg just mentioned that will really take you from level one or level two to level three. And those three are adaptability and experimentation, contracting and communication, user experience and decentralization. So Meg, why don't you start by telling us a little bit about adaptability and experimentation? No, we're going to spend more time on the others.
2: So I'll stay on theme. And I would say that adaptability and experimentation as a capability is kind of like the, it's the gateway drug of the rest (laughs) of the maturity (laughs) model. So that's the first capability. And it's really how well is your team or function, teams within your function, teams that transcend your function and go cross-functional, how well are they able to adapt and learn? And it's a real set of skills around micro-learning, putting together experiments, trying new things, iterating on those new things, and then refining that learning and integrating it back into the rest of your operations. So it's really kind of cornerstone. If you don't find ways to strengthen that, then it will be very hard to change and grow elsewhere in your operating model. But as Rodney said, it's something that we cover throughout our work. And we thought that we'd focus more deeply on the next two capabilities for today.
1: Yeah, and if you're hungry to hear more about adaptability and experimentation, like, see also the 200 episodes of Brave New Work that talk about it prior to this mini-series, because it's everywhere. Okay, let's dig into contracting and communications. This is, to me, contracting is the killer app mm-hmm. of this change. This mm-hmm. is a superpower of mine, so I'm a little bit biased in terms of how important it is. But I will tell you, it is something that when I get into client organizations and start coaching people to do this, it mm-hmm. is so antithetical to what systems nudge us to do. And it is such a massive unlock. And it is generally so much less scary in practice than it seems in theory. So yeah. so Meg, tell us about contracting and comms. Yeah. So the way I think about contracting is
2: how you define the space between components of a system. So like how two roles communicate, how a team communicates with another team in an HR context, like how an HRBP communicates with their internal client. So it's really like how you define the collaboration and shape that collaboration and that relationship in order to meet a specific end. So in practice, what that looks like, you know, people use practices like working agreements, decision rights role chartering. There's things like that that you can use to really start to get tight and kind of clarify bright lines what this partnership is actually going to do and how we're going to do it together. And the why behind it, which I think is probably what you notice, Rodney, about how it like really unlocks stuff, is that the stronger you get at contracting is it allows you to lay the foundation for decentralization. It allows you to lay the foundation for pushing authority to the edge, which enables your organization to speed up. And specific to HR, it starts to be a way of making things explicit that pulls HR out of the role of keeping everyone happy. So HR as a function Mm -hmm. is often like kind of spread and it's everywhere. And there's a lot of different partners to keep happy. And there's kind of, you can get pulled in so many different directions. And a lot of the time, one of the quickest ways to start unwinding that is to go into this really contracting mindset of how do we make things explicit and clear? And that just frees up a lot of cognitive bandwidth for people. So that's how I think about contracting and why it's such a critical capability for teams as you're trying to evolve your model. Ronnie or Sam, what would you guys add to that?
0: I I wanted to actually ask you a little bit more because I feel like I'm getting a chance to kind of sit at the feet of a master here and ask you a little bit about like what makes contracting hard or I guess it said another way, like why do we have to focus on it explicitly? Why don't we just naturally get good at it over the course of doing other stuff?
1: Oh, yeah, that's
2: a great question. <laughs> well, it's interesting because I actually think contracting is the hard skill that's underneath what we call soft skills. <laughs> so mm-hmm. if you if you look at like what you might call it or relational skills or skills that are traditionally done by people who have to make systems work <laughs> and have to make people work with other people, you will see there's contracting moves and it's really about getting things really explicit. I think the reason that we we don't learn to do it in most workplaces and in most educational institutions is that they're very conflict avoidant. Yeah. And so it can be a bit frightening to, you know, actually approach the space where it's like, well, whose decision is this? And what's our actual goal? So that is my my instinct is that a lot of our institutions train us to be more avoidant. What do you think, Rodney?
1: Yeah, I agree. And I think that, you know, because HR is so often seen as being a cost center or being overhead or not being strategic, the whole first principle of existence is like, don't make them more mad. Like They're already mad that we have to be here and that they're hearing from us. You know, like don't make it worse by creating specific boundaries or by saying no to things or by agreeing on different kinds of terms. And what's interesting is I have seen in a number of clients of ours, large-scale HR Trainings rolled out, and I took some of these when I worked in HR that are like about like influencing the business and how to negotiate and whatever. And to me, all of that kind of skill building is basically how you get around contracting so you don't have to do it, but just doing it is the move. Like all of that stuff is noise, all of the stakeholder influency stuff is to paper over something that's fundamentally broken, which is our ability to have a direct conversation about what our aim is and what that means that we're trading off in order to have it. And I think this comes really strongly into level three and mission-based teaming because it's so easy to unearth a bunch of priorities that have been lingering or unattended or you know not delivered and be like, let's go get after this. And that's the really fun part. And then the contracting of who do we need on this team? How much of their time do we actually need? Who is not going to be on this team? What are the missions we are not going to do right now? When we're a month into this mission and now somebody is impatient because they want us to do the next thing, how are we going to not become distracted because we are going to see this thing to its conclusion? Like That is where the contracting rubber meets the Autobahn,
0: in my opinion. At the end of the day, I think it's really about trade-offs and true prioritization. And generally, we don't like to do that because those things are hard and difficult to do and lead to conversations, to Meg's point, that can be somewhat conflict ridden. And it's easier to kind of just leave things floating around in this implicit space where we just use our relationships to plaster over any sort of bumps that we hit along the road, as opposed to like actually contracting. How are we going to do this? What aren't we going to do? What does yeah. that mean for our priorities? Things like that. Yeah.
2: And it has a like particular impact in HR because, you know, the levels of burnout are so high mm. because we don't use contracting. We lean into the emotional space, the relational space of HR people as we kind of like paper that over and make the relationship yeah. work. But that's not sustainable. It, first of all, it doesn't scale. Secondly, it doesn't help everyone grow. And then third, it's just, it's just a pain. Like it's hard to be part of, you know, year after year.
1: I want to dig a little bit further into that. So I should say out loud that Meg is also our membership steward at The Ready, which is, like, as close to an HR function as we have, which isn't that close. But, you know, there's overlaps in the Venn diagram. And mm-hmm. and I feel like I've learned a lot working with you about the emotional labor being held and carried. And I know, like, I've been around so many HR people in the last six months. And to your point, mm-hmm. they are ex from, like— yeah just being the vessel into which everyone's really difficult feelings and the trauma of a <laughs> pandemic are being dumped right now. And yeah, they're like yeah. they're donezo. And so so talk a little bit about even as that is part of the role. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. think you're really skilled in still being boundaried and doing contracting around the work, even as you are holding the emotional stewarding role. How do you do that if you're an HR person?
2: (laughs) Oh man, well, I think there's a few things and I don't know how much control people have over the conditions that they're working in. One thing certainly for me is consenting into it. And so it's really kind of being intentional about like where the space is where I can receive whatever is emotionally present in the system. And then where do I get to shut that off and not focus my attention on that? So for me, that looks like a role mix. And I think that in, you know, in a lot of HR contexts, is another reason why MBTs and dynamic teaming is like so much healthier. It would allow people to not be always in the place of having the hard conversation because most of us Mm -hmm. can do it to some degree, but we shouldn't be doing that 90% of our work life. It's just, it's not sustainable. So I think a big part of it is role mix, which mission-based teaming accomplishes. I think the second piece is around decision rights and having the ability to actually make some choices about the information that you're taking in. And then the third thing, which is really connected to contracting is having an ecosystem that you're in where you can kind of frame the problem, frame the question, and then hold it up to the other functions and say, hey, (laughs)
1: like Mm -hmm. we
2: have an issue here and I keep hearing about it. And, you know, it is, but it is our kind of collective responsibility. So I think about it as like containment and then also having open lines with other functions to say, I will not continue to avoid this for your <laughs> comfort. <laughs> we do need to resolve it. So obviously the way people can do that is, is based on their context, but those are to me the ways to start clawing out of that well.
1: Yeah. One thing that I've seen you do, in my opinion, to really great effect compared to how I did this when I was in an HR role is I think you have done a pretty exceptional job of getting out of triaging only and staying in, like, the never-ending whirlpool of individual discontent. And what I mean by that is, like, there is emotional processing work to be done in any complex system, and I am certainly the first person to say we have to do that kind of stuff at work because we're humans and we can't just leave it at home. And there are points at which that actually becomes like quite destructive and it's cyclical and it's not going anywhere. And the frustration is increasing with every conversation. It's not being channeled Mm -hmm. into something that is beneficial to the individual or to the system. And what I've seen you do is create very specific containers to be like, this is when you can come and unload this is when you can come and figure out what the fuck to do about it. And Mm -hmm, this is mm -hmm. when you can deal with it yourself. And like, I think that is a level of contracting that I rarely see HR people do. Most of us live more in the universe of like picking up the phone and just hearing someone go, you got a minute. And then that being like, okay, now we're on a journey to whatever fucked up situation that person is dealing with. (laughs)
2: Yeah. Yeah. And you're not going to say no at that point. No. Right. Like, that's right
1: the thing. Of course. Yeah. You totally. can't be like, well, it depends. It depends yeah. on what to say. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. Yeah, totally.
0: And the nice thing about creating those distinct spaces as kind of a user of those spaces, it helps mm-hmm. me and our colleagues stop for a second and think like, oh, yeah, do I just want to vent or do I want to go solve a problem or is this something I can solve on my own as opposed to it just being this kind of like ball of wax that I haven't taken the time or effort to actually interrogate what it is that I'm feeling?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting because when I reflect on what enables me to do that within the ready is like, I do feel very genuinely in our system. Like we have a desire to fix things or make things work better. We have Mm -hmm. a real desire as a system to move forward and evolve and adapt. And I, I think in a lot of businesses, HR is sort of the place where it's like, this is a people related problem that we don't really want to solve or have time to solve. And so we just kind of shove it over there. And that's really, it's just not effective. It's not enough. And it does require as, a, as an HR person, like having the capacity to pull 50% of your time up and out so that you can actually work on revolutionizing and evolving the things that are causing the problem.
1: So yeah, but thanks for saying those nice things, guys. That was really nice. <laughs> I be mean, it's, it's all true. And just to like tie yeah. what you just said, interesting, like it's coming sort of full circle in my mind. I think that one of the things that, you know, our HR business coaches, which is our rebranding mm-hmm. and re-evolving of the HR business partner, sitting sort of in the center of mission-based teams, one of mm-hmm. the big upsides to that is pulling together a lot of what we just talked about. And what I mean by that is getting HR out of being the point Mm -hmm. in the triangle that allows a system to avoid solving problems because they just keep listening to the problems without the authority to make the changes and also don't have the ability to push it to where the problem really is often and be like, hey, man, Hey, manager, why don't you fix this? Like, I'm tired <laughs> yeah. of hearing from your employees about you. Like, deal with your shit, you know. And I know yeah. as HR people, we do a fair amount of that, but we don't. We can only do so much. What I like about mission-based teaming is we are pulling together the problems, the users, the authority. Yeah. And the work so that we're getting HR out of being that layer of avoidance, frankly, in a lot of systems that allows us to, instead of solving the problem by being like, we're going to reimagine our hiring process, or we are going to reimagine performance management as a collective who has collective ownership of this mission, we orient toward that rather than being like, well, HR sucks and performance management sucks and it's always going to suck and they should really do something about it.
2: Yeah. And it, it's also going to like make the job sustainable. <laughs> you know, like no one can be a crash yeah. pad for all the things forever. You know, like that's just yeah. not, that's not, that's not her bill, you know, totally. um, it is exciting.
0: Okay. So we've been talking about contracting, but what about communications? How is that different from what we've been talking about so far, Meg?
2: So Communication in this model is the question of not how do you communicate in terms of like right now, how am I going to give you a piece of feedback or how am I going to make an ask for a thing? Although that is, of course, helpful. It's how you structure communication. So the flow of information across distributed contexts and then also, you know, how we structure those moments of feedback or how we structure those asks. So it's everything from, you know, the knowledge transfer rhythms so that a team is working with the same rough set of information, having like a good Uh, online infrastructure for how you store and share materials. Like, I mean, how many places have you worked where there's just a chaotic SharePoint and you're supposed to figure out how to find? Yeah, that's that's the baseline, unfortunately. Um, So that does a lot because then you don't have to spend 20% of your time looking for information to help you do your work. And then it's also things like having good communication conventions and practices for things like working through things asynchronously. So any mission-based team is going to have to be using something like Teams or Slack. It's going to have to be using a conversation platform. Platform. And there are ways to do that which are really fluid and helpful and intuitive and unblock work without needing a meeting. So the communication part of this capability is really about how you structure the flow of information in a team. It's even and especially when you're actually doing creative work, you're piloting something you don't know what you're going to need to do, but you do know you're going to need to take steps. So this is really important because the moment you wade into an MBT or any new terrain, you will need to lean on this capability.
1: And just to say out loud, like, even if you're listening to this and you're like, I'm not taking your assessment, I'm not going to transform shit. Screw you guys. That's totally fine. These (laughs) skills are going to be really... (laughs) Turn this off. Go outside. (laughs) These skills are going to be really useful to you, particularly if you work in HR, even if you're Mm -hmm. not making any systemic change, particularly the next one, which every Mm -hmm. time I talk to an HR team about this, they're just like, yes, that is the thing that we need to make our lives less difficult. And, Mm -hmm. And that is this couplet capability of user experience and decentralization. And like, I think the TLDR on this is HR creates solutions that somebody <laughs> asks for and then nobody wants. And this is our way out of that. So Meg, tell us a little bit about uh, user experience. Why don't we start there?
2: Yeah. So user experience and customer experience, employee experience, in this model, we, we put it all in the bucket of user experience, which is how we understand value and the, the needs of a particular user, and then how we design for them. So this is really important for HR for a lot of reasons. One is that HR is often the space in the organization where there's something critical moments that happen there, whether it's like mm. parental leave or bereavement leave or compensation or performance management. Like there's these kind of critical, emotionally charged moments. And if we can design for the best possible experience for the end user that allows us to have like a low friction process that you know gets the thing that needs to be achieved achieved and improves relationship, coordination, coherence amongst all the component parts. So it's very critical because of those, like, obviously the output of those moments is important, but also the how of those moments leaves a a really important lasting taste in the mouth of everyone involved. We like to see HR teams putting process design at the heart of their work, especially as they get to level three and beyond. The other reason is that it sets them up for automation. So Mm -hmm. if you have an end-to-end low friction design process, that gets you a lot of the way that you need to go in order to look at automating the parts of your work that you would like to automate.
0: So what does it look like for an HR team or function to start focusing on UX as something that they're really going to take seriously?
2: Well, the first question that
0: usually has to come up
2: is which user? (laughs) So (laughs) which user in which moment, which specific problem? One of the things that happens, I worked for a period of time kind of. Within and adjacent to an HR function at a big institution, big university, and we were we were constantly pinging between different users because we were trying to keep everyone happy. And Mm -hmm. I could never get clarity about who was actually supposed to be the user of a particular process that I was supposed to hold. And so it just was really hard. It was really hard. I was constantly I would try to design something that was like fairly context agnostic so that I could at least use it in different ways. And then I'd be constantly pulled by the OS of that system in different directions because we didn't know who our end user ultimately was. What about you, Rodney? What do you think about when you think about like, how does HR actually learn to implement UX?
1: I mean, this is so core to the problem and what you just described. And I've had this conversation recently with HR folks, and this totally squares with my experience in HR. It's like, okay, we need to redesign, let's call it how we do succession planning. And it's like, cool, HR, go figure this out. So I go away and I do a bunch of research and I'm like, here's how I think the best way is to do that. And they're like, great. Now go talk to the stakeholders about it. And it's like, okay. So I go and talk to Jeff and he's like, take out bullets two and three. And then I go and talk to Marsha and she's like, mm, I don't actually think this is right. We should do it this way. And then I go and talk to Brian and he's like, I just, I think that this won't really be that useful. Blah, blah, blah. And so like I chip away and chip away and chip away in all of these little one-on-one conversations until I have something that is vague enough to be unobjectionable to everyone and not useful to anyone. And that is like the heart of what isn't user design and Mm -hmm. user experience design. And so what I want to see instead, even though it's much more pokey and much more hard to accomplish, is okay, I am going to potentially in a mission-based team have those people in the mix and some other users and someone who's a designer and Mm -hmm. someone who's in operations and the person Mm -hmm. who knows where this thing is going to live from a tooling perspective. And we are going to sprint on this thing, testing from an MVP as we build it out until we have something that we can then pilot in a team of teams or a function, and then we can spread across functions. That's the way we bring HR product and service to the internal marketplace. Mm -hmm. What generally happens is the inverse of that, which is tons and tons of planning, tons and tons of like focus grouping to the bottom, and then a completely toothless rollout. And we want the exact opposite of that thing.
0: And I can see how this is connected to our previous conversation around contracting because inherent in this conversation is what we're not doing, which is responding as quickly as possible to whoever is the maddest and loudest right now (laughs) to, to get them whatever will make them less mad and less loud.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I also think this really, I want to bring this to decentralization because one of the, big ahas that I see HR teams having in our workshops is this idea that you can create things from the center, like in a mission-based team, that are MVP, that are defaults for everyone to use, but that are highly configurable at the edge, or, or in this case, by the business. And so what I mean by that is, again, taking my succession planning example, or Meg, maybe after you could take your benefits example, it's like, okay, here's an MVP of this that includes Um, tooling that should work for everyone, a default workflow that we think is pretty good, and some templated communications that you all can make your own. Here's a timeline that we would like to make sure that everybody has some conversation. I shouldn't be using succession planning because I don't really believe in it, but you get my point. And then from Mm -hmm. there, it's like, okay, we push this now to the edge and like finance, sales, prod, and like... Now, make it your own. Like, now you do the last 20, 40% of configuration to make it fit for your context in a decentralized way. We're not going to try to figure out every eventuality and overcomplicate things.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, for benefits, depending on whether you're globally distributed or you're located in one country, you can do it differently. You could say this is our baseline. Like we want every employee to have pharmacare, vision, dental, basic medical. And then beyond that, there's this much. You can use it for child care. You can use it for elder care. You can use it for, you know your ergonomic setup at your home office, right? Like, so there's different ways that you could do that that would allow teams to deploy it in their own context within certain guardrails and, you know, financially would remain viable. Uh, the other thing that you can standardize is the process aspects around it. So it's like, regardless of the exact benefits package that team A has, they access it through the same mechanism. And that mm. also reduces the amount of like responding to a million different because people don't understand the the access mechanism.
0: Every time I've worked with a team that's trying to do more decentralization, there's some things that always pop up around not being overly grippy about what happens on Mm. the edge or at the edge. And I'm Mm -hmm. wondering how you all have been thinking about that as you've been working on the future of HR. Yeah, it's interesting because one of the first clients that I brought this to just to get her
2: feedback she was based in HR, and she said, "This is a compliance and risk management function. We can't do this, mm. specifically around decentralization." That was the part that she zeroed in on, and I, I, I think it was very genuine. Like that was where she was coming from. I mean, I think there's two things that come up for me. I'd be curious what you hear, Rodney. But like, I think there's one thing, which is that we do have a tendency to overinflate risk as humans, <laughs> as the mammals we are. And I think that if your job for the past 10 years has been running after everything that is on fire, like you are somatically wired to see and feel risk because that's mm-hmm. what you've been expected to do. So there is a certain kind of like mindset shift in terms of learning to assess risk and make it very clear and then make decisions based on it. And then connect to that. It's like how HR works with legal. That's mm-hmm. the other piece that's real connected to me is like, actually getting tight on what is a reasonable amount of risk that we're willing to take with this initiative does require a little bit of um, pushback often on like legal advice and that's a configuring of that relationship that I think needs to be thought through and is going to come up in any transformation.
1: I think that's right. I guess the only things I would add are one around the risk thing like on the one hand, Sure. Like heard and very valid because nobody wants to get the phone call that's like, we're getting sued because of a process that you designed. You know, it sucks. And there is also a part of me that's like, well, what do you want to be? Because what I keep hearing from HR leaders is like, we want to be seen as strategic. We want to be a model of the future of work. We want to lead the organization into something that feels more progressive or more humane or more adaptive or more whatever. And I'm like, you can't actually do that by just having creating more bureaucracy be your whole job. You're part of the problem. Two is, and Sam, like you and I have talked about this a million times, like there is such a bias around risk where it's like, this thing happened once, now we make a rule for it. Now we have to uphold that rule in perpetuity and that is what we call org debt, we don't even know if that one thing would ever happen again. But now we have hours and time and money and cycles and cycles and cycles, probably forever, because let's be honest, we're never going to unwrite that rule for what might have been a one off. And so yeah. on the one hand, I think like that person's perspective is really valid. On the other hand, I'm like, if you want to be strategic, you have to learn to look at risk a little bit differently, which is that you can never eliminate it. You are always doing stuff with the issue in the rear view. And as it relates to MBTs, and actually, I've taken a lot of solace in this in my source steward role. One of the ways that you can get out of that sort of like sympathetic nerve response that many of us have when we're making really difficult decisions is to be in a mission-based team with all of the other people who are deciding. So it's like, if we're going to do something like really spicy as a mission, which incidentally, I would not start with, I would work up to. But if we're going to do something really spicy, like we are going to reimagine our investigations process in the US as a mission, Well, that team needs to have legal in it and ops and probably external counsel for some of those meetings and comms and a bunch of other things so that as we're sprinting and as we're testing and as we're consenting it's not just me as the hr business coach who's like well i hope this works because holy shit it feels risky to me it's like no we are Mm -hmm. we are in this together and we have done this work together and we have determined this solution and we've tested this solution and we know that there is still risk because there's always still risk but Mm -hmm. it's way better than what we had before
0: so let's go I think that's probably a good place to wrap this episode up. Meg, it was so awesome having you on the show today.
2: Oh, yeah. Thanks for
0: having me, folks. It was fun. Rodney, what are we talking about next week?
1: Next week, Meg will be back for part two of this conversation. We are going to talk about the other three capabilities that we did not get to today that will help you fully lean into the Hollywood model and beyond as we examine the platform and creating a marketplace and using AI and all of that good stuff. So if you want a preview or you want to you know, get a little more marinated in that before you come back, check out the goods on theready.com forward slash F-O-H-R. And please do hook us up with your CHRO or your HRBP. We want to talk to them, want to answer all of their questions and hear about all of their problems. And we appreciate it. And you.
0: Thanks, as always, to Taylor Marvin for making us sound awesome. This mini series is produced by The Ready, where we help organizations around the world change the way they work. You can get in touch with us by emailing fohr at theready.com. And as for you, HR leaders listening right now, let's change ourselves.